You know, as we've, uh, as I kind of alluded to, we are continuing in a, in a new, in a series that this is uh, week five of six, and so um, it's our it starts here series. And and the reason with the why we've kind of set this up is this idea that. We are, uh, for those of us who are in this room, that we are likely, no matter what camp we fall in regards to our spectrum with our relationship with God, whether we don't really know anything about him, but we're, we're invited and so we're here to kind of see what, what maybe God or Jesus is all about because maybe we don't really know. And if that's you, thank you so much for coming. We're so glad that you're here. Maybe for some of us, we've known the Lord for quite a while, but maybe we grew up in him, but then we've kind of gone back and forth and church and being involved in the community of God has never really been our... Um, our go-to, something that we do all the time. We kind of come when we can, and then we go. We don't go for long stretches of time, and so maybe that's you. Uh, and again, if that's you, we're glad that you're here. And then for some of us, we, we come, and we've known the Lord for years, and possibly for decades, and showing up on a Sunday morning is just as common to us as breathing, and so that's just something that we're a part of, and we do all the time. But no matter where you are on that spectrum or somewhere in between, we recognize that if we're here this morning, there's a likelihood that we're, we're willing to ask the question and want the answer to the question is, how do I get a deeper relationship with God? Because no matter where you are, we always can go deeper with him and we can always know him better. And so we've looking at this idea over the past five weeks, um, including this week, this idea of it starts here. If we want to know how to get a deeper relationship with God, it starts here with our understanding of worship, of what worship looks like, who we worship. And so we've been answering questions like who, what, why, how, when, where, and, and next week will be where. So we have looked at these different questions. So I want to take just two minutes to re, kind of look at where we've been previously so we can set the stage for what God has for us this morning. And so we've been looking at uh, the very first week we looked at this idea of who we worship and say so we recognize that everyone worships something, but who we worship is everything. This idea that worship means to ascribe worth to. So we ascribe worth to something. Each and every one of us does, whether it's uh, through time spent with this or through a person, whether it's money spent on this, whether it's just our passion and our thoughts and our exciting things that we attribute and we ascribe worth to certain things in our lives. And so everyone worships something. But who we worship is everything. And we looked at the golden calf incident, recognizing that we want to worship the one true God, Yahweh, and not worship other idols or other belief systems because it's who we worship that will change everything in our lives. Then we recognize that the next week we talked about what. And in the what, we talked about how I used to think that worship was just singing. It was just the 20 minutes on stage. But instead, worship isn't just lifting up our voices. It's part of it. But worship isn't just lifting up our voices. It's laying down our lives, recognizing that it's an all-encompassing act of worship. That In Romans 12, that Paul talks about that we lay down our lives as a living sacrifice, and that is our true and proper, or maybe your, your uh, translation says that is your spiritual act of worship. So recognizing it's not just lifting up our voices, it's laying down our lives. Then the third week, we talked about why. Why do we worship God? And we worship God because we've been changed by who he is, what he's done, and how he loves. We recognize that others can know who he is, or we can know what he's done, and we can know how he loves. In fact, James talks about how even the demons know who he is, and they shudder. But it's this idea of not just knowing it, but being changed by it. When Peter is speaking in Acts 2, then it talks about how around verse 37 or so, it talks about how the people were cut to the heart because they've been changed by this message. So we don't just know who he is, what he's done, and how he loves. We've been changed. We've been cut to the heart. 
And so that is why we worship, because once we've, those who have been forgiven much, love much, and those who love much, worship much. So then we looked at last week, this idea of when, and, and we kind of gave this dichotomy how for many of us, we attribute a few sacred activities, a few spiritual things that we do, like coming to church, singing, hearing a teaching, uh, admonishing one another, um, whatever it is, giving thanks to God. We kind of keep a little list of sacred activities and we just check off, okay, I had my quiet time. Okay, yes, um, I was able to pray today. Um, yo, yes, I do this. And we have these lists of sacred activities. And then we say that that is our summation of worship. But instead, we recognize that we want to see God and we want to see that there's this other area that's secular. And by that, I just mean things that are, we think are, we wrongfully think, are neutral. That are things that, oh, well, it doesn't really matter because I do my sacred activities over here and I check my boxes here. But God doesn't really care how I am at work. Or God doesn't really isn't really important into how I live my life in my home, or God isn't really important when I hang out with, with people who don't know him, because that's, that's my time, whereas God gets his time, that's sacred. And so we kind of broke down that idea by looking at Colossians 3 and recognizing that Paul doesn't say, when you're doing sacred activities, do it for the Lord. He says, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. And then verse 23, he later says, whatever you do, do it as if for the Lord and not man. So it doesn't break down sacred and secular. It says this idea that worship is more than performing sacred activities once a week. It's more than just checking off our lists. It's more than performing sacred activities once a week. It's recognizing the sacred in all of our activities throughout the week so that everything we do can be an act of worship. And that's when we worship. It's all the time, not just on a Sunday morning, not just when we sing, not just when we clap. So that's where we've been. This morning, we're going to look at the how of how we worship. So before we do, I would ask that you would join me in a word of prayer as we get ready for what God has for each and every one of us. So Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you that we have the opportunity, Lord, to dive into your word. We thank you that your word is living and active. We thank you that your word is, um, is so powerful, Lord. That's a double-edged sword, that it can divide between bone and marrow, that it's so rich and deep and powerful for us to learn more about you, God. And so I pray that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak to each and every one of us in a, in a clear and mighty and powerful way so that you would get the glory of how we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And so as I said, we're talking about what it looks like for the how of worship. And I mentioned earlier that the students, uh, that there were 16 students and four adults that were heading up to, to Wildwood um, this week. And I remember, not all of you may know this, but before my previous job was at a church in LA County and I oversaw a campus and then I also led or helped lead uh, a lot of the small groups and wrote curriculum and, and did things like that. But before I was involved in small group ministry for the whole church, I was one of the youth pastors, uh, the student ministries pastors for years. I had was there for nine and a half years when I was 30 years old. And I was, if I could have held on for six more months, I would have been able to be within the youth ministry for a third of my life. But I couldn't hold on for six more months. Um, but no, so it was God had called me into another position. And so I, I moved into the same church, into a new role. But I, I have a heart for, for student ministries and for children's ministry. Like this is a, a wonderful thing. And we have great leaders and staff members who do an awesome job with that here. But with that being said, I remember getting ready this morning when we were getting ready to leave and, and you know, Pastor Dan was sharing and, and getting people ready for what God may do. And I remember being in those shoes and, you know, looking forward to long drives and less sleep and good, good God time of seeing how God is working in these students, but also recognizing that it can be exhausting. 
So when I was in, two, in 2009, we kind of rearranged our ministry so the junior high and high school had two different camps. And so we had a junior high camp that was in Angeles Crest up in LA County um, for, for junior hires one week. And then maybe with a, week, a day break or maybe two, the next week we went to Shasta, Lake Shasta up in Northern California for houseboating with high schoolers. And so I, I love people. I like people. People are great. I'm also an introvert, and I also need that time to replenish and refresh. And you know what's really bad for replenishing and refreshing? Two weeks of camp in a row. Because it is exhausting, and it's good. God does good things, but that doesn't mean that I am doing that I'm doing well in the midst of that. And I remember these two weeks, by, by the time I was in Shasta, I was just, I was dead behind the eyes. Like, I was exhausted. I was poured out. And I, I knew God was doing good things. And I was excited for the good things that he was doing, but... I was so exhausted that I didn't even slow down to worship him, that I didn't slow down to be with him, that I wasn't still to know that he was God, that I was just trying to go from one activity to the next, one day to the next, one camp to the next, and was just so busy working for God and seeing him move that I failed to be with God and allow him to move in me. And my guess is that I'm not the only one that's ever felt overwhelmed with our time commitments and overwhelmed with wanting to do good things. I'm going to venture a guess that there have been many of us who have been in a different season, maybe in this season, where we're so exhausted from doing works or being busy or having our lists of things that need to get done, that we're so exhausted and overwhelmed that we fail to slow down, to be with and to worship God. That we could do so many good things for him, but if we fail to be with him, then we're missing the point and we're missing the heart of a relationship with him. And so for many of us, we just fail to slow down. For some of us, we have so much list to do that it's too overwhelming. We can't even think about how we could slow down. For other of us, maybe we're people who serve in the church and we have leadership roles or we do things in the church and we're doing good things. But the problem is that we're doing good things to the extent of us doing good in our walk with God or to the, to the um, detriment, I should say, of us doing good in our walk with God. We're burning out rather than slowing down. And so this, can, this idea of constant activity is something that our culture tells us is where we get value. Get value by what you produce, by how much you can get done. And that is where you define your success. But we look at John 15, we look at the gospel, we look at um, a relationship with God, and it's not in how much you produce that shows your success. It's as John 15 talks about remaining in the vine so that God could produce good fruit in you. It's that relationship of being with him. That we look at how much you get done is the definition of success in, in our culture, but it's not so much that as Jesus has already done what's most important for us. So we may have right relationship with him, so it's whose you are is more important and gives us our identity when it comes to relationship with God. And it's not how busy you can be, but how often you can slow down to know how to worship God is where we get to see true life happen in a relationship with him. But so often, even for those of us that are Christian leaders or even those of us who are committed to church and even those of us who love God, we can substitute true worship and worship in a, in a, in a poor way. And this is an example of A.W. Tozer writes it this way. There, there is all around us, however, a very evident and continuing substitute for worship. And I speak of the compelling temptation among Christian believers to be constantly engaged during every waking hour in religious activity. This idea that we can buy into the world's lie of doing enough and producing enough, we can take that mindset and try to attribute that to a walk with God and think that it's only if I'm doing good things for the Lord every day, all day, that that's the only way I find my identity and my hope. And so is doing good things for the Lord a good thing? 
Yes, of course it is. We were created to do good works. But is doing so much or so many good works to the detriment of our souls a good thing? No. That in Mark 6, we see that when Jesus sent out the, his disciples, and then when they came back in, they were sharing stories of, God, we saw demons, um, Jesus, we saw demons being exercised. We saw lives being changed. We saw people come to know you. And they were talking so fast that the scripture says that they did not even take time to eat. That they were so busy doing good things for God that they stopped to just even eat. And so Jesus says, come away with me. Let's go to a quiet mountainside. Get away from the people so we can eat, pray, and spend time. So even doing good things all the time is not always good if it is to the detriment of our relationship with him, if we are burning out and not slowing down. So Richard Foster addresses this idea of this constant activity, this constant um, just busyness that surrounds our culture. And he says this, in contemporary society, our adversary, the enemy, he majors in three things, noise, hurry, and crowds. If he can keep us engaged in muchness and manyness, he will rest satisfied. That if he can keep us busy, then he could keep us stagnant. If he could keep us busy, then he can keep us stopping from going where God wants us to go. If he can keep us busy, then he can win. He would love to keep us so caught up in noise, hurry, and crowds that we wouldn't hear the still small voice of the one who calls us forth into right relationship with him. So our main point for this morning is if you don't slow down, you won't know how to worship. If you don't slow down and get away from the noise, get away from the crowds, get away from the hurry, if you don't slow down, you won't know how to worship. So we're going to dive into Exodus chapter 3, and then we're going to follow the story of Moses. Now, when I talk about how, this sermon is not six easy steps to figure out how to worship God. Instead, this is a, a sermon in which we can look at the story of Moses and we can see how it is that he came to experience uh, just this beautiful, powerful, incredible time of worship in his life. And in order to get to that, we have to start earlier on in the story. So Exodus 3, uh, starting in verse 1, it's page 89 in the church Bibles. If you have your Bible app or if you have your own Bible, that's awesome. We're in Exodus 3, starting in verse 1. We're just going to read the first three verses. It says, now Moses was tending the, sh the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see the strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. So the first point for us this morning is for us to recognize the importance of the need to stop. Now try to picture this idea of Moses. Imagine if he were walking his flocks right now and he saw this happened. He would probably, most likely, he probably would be on his phone anyways and barely paying attention to the flock. And then he'd be going and he would see this, this beautiful burning bush. Like, wow, that is, that's an incredible thing. I better take a picture of this so that my friends can see it. And I better post it online so that others can know how great this moment that I'm experiencing right now. So he takes a picture of it. He probably puts some hashtag like, you know, this bush is lit or this bush is fire. And it's like, oh, you know, I got it. Send it, put it in my pocket. And I keep walking on my road. Imagine what would have happened if he had done that. Because that's what often most of us, many of us, I should say, may do. But it's this idea of stopping. So your first note there is stopping. And then diving into this idea of the importance of, or sorry, the difference, I'm sorry, the difference between being connected and being present. 
Because we can have a phone and we can feel connected to everyone we've ever wanted to know, even our third grade teacher's youngest dog or something like that. Like we could find everybody on Facebook. But there's a difference between being connected with everyone and then allowing that connectivity with everyone to stop us from being present with anyone. That you go and you see this when you go to a, a playground and instead of parents spending time with their kids and playing with them and going up on the slide and watching them, you don't see the smiling faces of the parents, you see the top of their heads looking at their phones. Because they're looking down, because they say, oh, this is a break, a time for me. And I'm sorry to tell you this, this isn't just for parents with young kids, this is all of us. This is when you go to a restaurant and you see a couple that are looking at each other and you're like, unless if they're texting each other, they're missing the point of being together right now. Or you see this with people that of all ages that allow the phone to be what focuses us and not spending time with one another. We see this a little bit more aptly when we see uh, the story of a second grade teacher in Louisiana. At the end of May, this story came out. Her name is Jen Adams Beeson, and she posted on Facebook because she had put this question to her second grade students and said, what invention don't you like? Or what invention do, do you hate? And so I have a picture up here that I wanna show you that as it says that this is what this student wrote. If I had to tell you what invention I don't like, I would say that I don't like the phone. I don't like the phone because my parents are on their phone every day. A phone is sometimes a really bad habit. And I hate my mom's phone and I wish she never had one. That is an invention that I don't like. So outside of the fact that she had a very good introduction sentence and then some proving sentences and then closing concluding, outside of the well-written paragraph, it's this idea that, that this phone that our phones, this idea of us being connected, can become a very bad habit. And isn't it apt or isn't it poignant when we hear from the mouth of babes something that we need to hear and change in our lives? That we can't just stay within a phone. We can't just say that we're being connected and feel like that's the most important connection because what's more important than being connected to everyone is to being present to the people you're with and being present to God in that moment. And so, one of the things that we can do as we look at the, the difference between being present and being connected and being present, one of the things we can do to help that come to fruition is to remember the Sabbath in your notes. Remember the Sabbath. Now, the literal meaning of the word Sabbath just means to, it means to stop. It means to cease. And if, I would challenge you and encourage you to look at Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, the two passages where the Ten Commandments are listed up. I would challenge you and encourage you this week to open up Exodus 20 and to open up Deuteronomy 5. And just do me a favor. Look at the different commandments and count how many words are for each of the commandments. You know, thou shalt love the Lord your God and do not have any other gods besides me. Okay, that's a certain amount of words. Then you say, you shall not worship any other idols. Okay, uh, we want to make sure that you honor your father and your mother. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not covet. They're fairly short. Then I want you to look at how lengthy and how many words are in the commandment to remember the Sabbath. It talks about remembering the, remember the Sabbath because the Lord your God, he worked for six days, then he rested on the seventh. And then based on which passage of the Deuteronomy 5 or the Exodus 20, he gives a different reason for that. He either talks about how it's important for us to then slow down, or he uses that as an example, in Deuteronomy 5 he uses it as an example of how the people were slaves in Egypt and they couldn't stop. And so it's important for us to stop to recognize that we are no longer enslaved. But if we look at that into our own lives, the recognition is that we still are enslaved to how much work we are doing, how much time we are spending to how focused we are on being connected to our phones rather than being present with what God has for us. That we are still often enslaved in the same way. And take a look at comparing how it is there. And, and notice, 
the first word there isn't keep the Sabbath. It's remember the Sabbath. It's almost as if God knew that we would forget. And so Pete Scazzaro, he's, a, he's an author who wrote Emotionally Healthy Spirituality and other books that I've really enjoyed. He talks about this idea of, for many of us, we don't stop because we're afraid that what happens if we stop? Like, you're, you're sitting here and saying, listen, you don't understand how many things I have on my list. Well, here's what he says. The core spiritual issue in stopping revolves around trust. Will God take care of us and our concerns if we obey him by stopping to keep the Sabbath? This idea of if we stop, will the world stop too? And we wouldn't put it that way because that sounds like a little self-aggrandizement and grandiose, but we think that if we don't get our things done, it's almost as if the world will stop working. And so instead of recognizing that the world existed long before we were here, any one of us individually, and it'll last for who knows how much longer than when we leave, that us getting things done is not going to keep the world running. So we can stop because we are not the ones on the throne. We are not the ones who have to hold it all together, and we are not the messiahs to make sure that the world keeps functioning. Pete Scazzaro continues, says, we stop on Sabbath because God is on the throne. He's on the throne assuring us that the world will not fall apart if we cease our activities. So some of you are listening to me and you're saying, listen, I get that that's a commandment and I get that that's something that's important, but there's no way I can stop for 24 hours in my week. If you saw my list, if you saw this, you would say, well, you know, you know, you're right. You're the one that doesn't have to follow the Ten Commandments. It's one of those where we think that we are the ones that are the exception, when rather that proves that we are part of the rule. That we recognize that we have to stop. We have to remember the Sabbath. And this is one of the commandments that most people who love God will break most, most frequently. So my family and I, when we, about January 2017, so a little about a year and a half ago, is when we really started to take this into heart and really started to think of how could we keep a Sabbath as a family. So we would either wait till uh, nap time, if, if the girls, if Shaylin was out of school, from nap time on Friday for 24 hours till nap time on Saturday, or um, if, if she was out of school, we'd do that. If she was in school, we'd wait till school was over, and then we would do 24 hours a full 24-hour day in which we stopped from work. Now, what does that mean? That means that we had to get a lot of things done to prepare for the Sabbath. We had to have a lot of discipline ahead of time to make sure that the bank, the bills were paid and the groceries was shopped for and everything else was done so that we could stop and rest, so we could stop and that we could delight in each other, delight in time with God, that we could go and we would go and have, make, have uh, really good food. Or that we could go and we could have a time where we are um, just resting and maybe watching a movie together and just enjoying family time. That we wouldn't have our phones with us all the time. That we would be able to just have a time of stopping. And so it's taken us, you know, we're, we're not perfect at it, but we're pretty consistent that once a week, there's a 24-hour block of time where we're not doing work for work and we're not doing work for home, our chores, but we are just spending time with family and explaining why this is important. And so if we get to a point where you're wrestling with this idea of, man, it's, it's, it's hard to take a Sabbath because it's hard to just sit and do nothing. It's, it's hard to not feel productive. It's hard to shed that, that philosophy that our world says. And that doing nothing is counterproductive. And Leonard Duhan tells us this, which can be kind of convicting. To fail to see the value of simply being with God and, quote, doing nothing. To fail to see that is to miss the heart of Christianity. Because the heart of Christianity isn't to do certain lists. It's not to have certain sacred activities. It's to have a relationship with the Father 
through Jesus Christ whom he sent, through the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And so, thankfully, Moses wasn't like us who went and saw the burning bush, took a picture of it, thought that was nice, and kept going. He stopped and said, you know what? As verse 3 says, I'm going to go see what this is about. I'm going to change my plans and go see what might be happening right now. So he stopped. The next thing we see, the next point there is going to be listen. To listen. Verse 4, we're just going to read verse 4, says this. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Even if we are someone who stops, even if we stop throughout the day, for some of us, we might see that story of Moses, and we recognize that we have a silence problem. We have a silence problem because we recognize that if we were to go and if we really saw, we stopped from where we we're going, we diverted our plans, and then we go over and we had a time with God. For many of us, if our current prayer life is reflected in how we would respond, for many of us, myself included, we might just talk about all the prayer requests that we have and then walk away, as opposed to listening. It's like if you go to a, a coffee with a friend and they're, you're talking with them, but they're not asking any questions about you, and they're just talking, 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 and then they don't ask any questions, they don't see how you're doing, and then they leave and they expect you to pay for the check. That is what we often can do when it comes to a relationship with God. For some of us, if we're too busy and we don't slow down in order to know how to worship, if we don't slow down, we're just going to see an opportunity with God and we're just going to talk, 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 and then we're going to leave and not actually listen to what he has to say. But instead, Moses says, here I am, Lord. He comes with a, a, a heart of listening, a heart of submission, a heart of being open to what God would have for him. He says, here I am, Lord. And so for us, we have in our culture a silence problem. Here's some evidence to that. Bernie Krauss, who records nature sounds for documentaries and things like that, he wrote in 1968, in order to get one hour of undisturbed natural sound, so no airplanes, no cell phones, no electricity buzzing, no car horns, in order to get one hour of undisturbed natural sound in 1968, it would take 15 hours to do that. He'd record 15 hours, and then he'd parse and parcel it together until there was one hour of undisturbed natural sound. A few years ago, he wrote, but today, in order to get that same one hour of undisturbed natural sound, it would take over 2,000 hours. Because we live in a culture of noise and hurry and crowds. That we look at the fact that we are uncomfortable with silence. Like right now, you felt uncomfortable with me just sitting there in silence. But we look at this idea of we are uncomfortable with silence. But God speaks in silence. We see that with Elijah. It wasn't in the earthquake or the wind or the fire that he spoke, that, that God spoke to him on, on the mountain. It was in the still, small voice, or as the Hebrew can say, in the sound of sheer silence. That's when God speaks. So if we're so busy having it be loud and absurd and busy and full, we can't be silent then we're going to miss what God has for us. Mother Teresa informs us. She says, I always begin my prayer in silence, for it is in the silence of the heart that God speaks. God is the friend of silence, and we need to listen to God because it is not what we say, but what he says to us and through us that matters. That in the same way that Husbands, if you just went to your wife and you didn't actually listen to how her day was and what was going on, and you just wanted to just sit there and just not even pay attention, you're missing the point of a relationship. 
Wives with husbands, the same thing. Because it's in the silence that we allow space for those we love to speak into our lives. So we too need to stop, and then we need to listen. We need to create space for God to speak into ours. The next point we talk about is the importance of silence in an absurd world. Silence in an absurd world. Now, this word absurd is a word that we, we hear often. And so what I want to um, remind you of, or maybe, I don't know how many of you are soccer fans here, but the World Cup is happening. Many of us don't know because America failed to qualify. But the, the World Cup is happening. In 2010, the World Cup happened in South Africa. And so what, do you remember who won in 2010? No one does, of course, it was, it was Spain. But some people do. But what people mostly remember about the World Cup of 2010 were these things called a vuvuzelas. Now you may not know that's what you remember about it, but if you followed it at all, you would recognize that there was these, this sound. There was this sound that was so prevalent throughout the World Cup that it became what it was most known for. In fact, we actually have a, a video, it's, it's only nine seconds, but we have a nine second video for you to be able to hear the sound of a vuvuzela. So can we play that? Yeah, I can only take nine seconds of it too. Now, with that being said, it was this idea that that was going on all game, every game. That was just the opening match where they showed that. And it was one of those where they were blowing so hard that it was so loud that coaches and players started to get frustrated because they couldn't hear what it was that needed to be said between teams to communicate in order to be able to play the game. Now, what I want to know is why do we use this word absurd? Like, those, those vuvuzelas are absurd. That is obnoxious. That is insane. But we get an insight into this word absurd when we look at what Henry Nouwen says. He says, in the word absurd, we find the Latin word certus, death. A spiritual life requires discipline because we need to learn to listen to God who constantly speaks but whom we seldom hear that we surround ourselves with so much noise and hurry and crowds that God is speaking to us all the time. But it's like we have these vuvuzelas in our ears that we cannot hear him speak. We are deaf to him moving. And it's like we're the players in a soccer match and the coach, God, is trying to tell us what to do and how to move and what we need to do to achieve what he would have for us to do. And instead of actually being able to hear it and respond to it, there's so much just ambient noise that bombards us that it's actually absurd. It makes us deaf. With that word certus, it makes us deaf to what he's saying. Now what I want to know is how many of you turned to Exodus 3, 5 through 12 yet? Did you hear me say that? I said that right during the time when the Vuvuzelas were playing, and I said, turn to Exodus 3, 5 through 12. Anybody hear that? No. Why? Because it's obnoxious and it's absurd. But with that being said, we're going to read Exodus 3, 5 through 12. This idea of the importance of silence in an absurd world, a world that wants to cause us to be deaf to what's going on. So let's read what God has to say to Moses through these seven or eight verses together. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I'm the, Lord, I'm sorry, I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. 
The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites have reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, verse 12, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. So we see that we need to not just allow the deafness and the absurdity of our lives to miss out on what God has for us. That we recognize that not only do we need to stop, we need to listen. But then when we listen, as Moses did, there's that next step of obey, of obedience. So we look at the next word as obey. Without obedience, on your notes, without obedience, we can miss out on the sign that reveals how God keeps his promises. That verse 12, Exodus 3.12, which we just read, said, Moses says, God, how am I going to know that you have sent me? He says, here's how you know. When you get them out of Egypt, you will bring all the people and you will worship me on this mountain. That's, that's awesome. That's a really cool thing. Lord, is there anything that you could show me today that that's going to happen? You know, we hear that God's going to do something. We receive a promise from him, but then we expect the sign to come immediately. And so we look at this and so... Moses, okay, he hears the promise. He's like, okay, if that's the sign, then I better get going and I better be obedient to what God has to say. And so he, we look at Exodus 4, 18 through 20, and this is how he's obedient. It says that then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all those who wanted to kill you were dead. In verse 20, so Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. That he didn't just stop and say, oh, that's a cool thing. There's a talking bush. He didn't just listen. He did listen, but he didn't just listen and say, wow, God, it sounds like you really love your people and there's really a great plan. That's going to be something someone else has to do. He obeyed. He recognized that this word Shema, which is in uh, uh, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, when it says hear, and it's the side of hear, O Israel, listen, O Israel. That word hear is this word of both listening and obeying. It's not just one or the other. It's this idea that they are two rails on the same track, that listening and obeying is one in the same. And this is something I had to learn when I had kids, because Shailen, uh, when she was about two or three years old, my mom, who's a psychologist, and, and so she was visiting us, and Shaylin, as two and three-year-olds do, weren't, they weren't, she wasn't listening to what we were saying. She was say, do this, and she wouldn't do it. I'm like, honey, you're not listening. Like, listen to what I'm saying. And my mom, she, you know, she said, you know, the truth is, is that it is possible for them to listen to you and choose not to obey. That for us, and this is my, at least my daughter, she's my youngest, she's again in that two to three range, and she's experiencing the same thing, where we say, honey, listen, and she just thinks it's funny, and laughs, and runs off, and nothing makes us happier. Um, <laughs> but it's this idea that you can, we can listen, and still choose not to obey. Not if we understand what this idea of listening truly means in Hebrew, of listening and obeying being part of the same two tracks, or so two rails of the same track, but we can still say, oh God, man, I hear you. I hear that you have people in my life that are lost and that they need to know him. Man, that is a great thing, Lord, and that is going to be someone else's job. 
Or we say, God, you know, I hear that you want us to, to reach out and help people who are in a broken situation across the world or across the nation or across the street. But you know what? That's going to have to be someone else's job. That there's a gap between our listening and our obeying. And just like Shailen, just like two or three-year-olds, we too can listen and not obey what God has to say. So that's the importance of obeying. Because by Moses obeying, he went and then he goes into the people. He says in Exodus 5, let my people go. And then we see the 10 plagues that come. And because Pharaoh says, I'm not going to let them go. I'm not going to let them go. Even when he says he's going to, he goes back on it. And then we see the culmination of this when the firstborn was slaughtered through the night of the Passover. And it was only those who were Israelites who had the blood of the lamb covering the doorposts that allowed their family to be safe from that slaughter of the firstborn. And so because of that, finally, Pharaoh says, okay, you can go. Then he changes his mind and he chases after them. And then they get to the point where the Red Sea is there. And then they break over the Red Sea and they cross all the way through. And then the, the Egyptians, as they follow with their chariots, they, the Red Sea crashes over them as well. And then the Israelites are safe. And then they get into the promise or they get into the wilderness. And as they are there, they get to a point, which we will catch up to in Exodus 24 in just a couple moments. But we get to a point where we have seen all the incredible things God had done because Moses, his servant, had stopped, listened, and obeyed. He had done all three. So what's the importance of obedience? Henry Nouwen again looks, helps us to look into the etymology of the word obedient. He said, the word obedient comes from the Latin word audere, which means listening. A spiritual discipline is necessary in order to move slowly from an absurd to an obedient life, from a life filled with noisy worries to a life in which there is some free inner space where we can listen to our God and follow his guidance. That whether we like to admit it or not, most of us live absurd lives. And even when we say we want to be obedient, we do. We want to be obedient. I want to be obedient. But if I allow the absurdity to cause me to be deaf to God's words, then I'm not truly listening and I'm not truly obeying. And I don't think I'm the only one that can struggle with that. So remember, we talk about this idea that we often want in our lives, we want the sign that God is going to be with us to happen right away. We think if God is calling us to do something amazing, that Lord, wouldn't it be awesome for me to know that it's you? Maybe next, when I wake up tomorrow, you can do a rainbow, but it's like upside down. Or maybe you can just make it so that the sun rises in the west this time instead of the east. Or, or maybe you'll just let me, whatever it is, that we fill in the gaps and we say, God, it'd be so great if you just answered and showed me that the sign is now. That you made a promise and then the sign was immediate. But we see in Exodus 3.12 that that's not how it works. We see that it, the truth is that the sign or the promise comes, I'll be with you, and here's the proof. But then comes obedience, then the sign. We see the promise, I'll be with you, here's how you know. When you, well, you'll know it's me that when you bring everyone out, I'll be with you. So Moses says, okay, well, that can't happen unless if I'm obedient. So we have promise, then we have our obedience, and then we can look back as a sign and say, God, look at what you've done. Look at why we worship you, because we've been changed by who you are, what you've done, and how you've loved. And we can look back and we can truly worship him for who he is, because we've seen that happen. But how often do we miss out on things because we fail to be obedient? We fail to stop, listen, and then actually obey what it is he's calling us to do. Because that's where faith comes in, between the gap, between the promise and the sign, is obedience and our faith. So lastly, this idea of 
We've looked at stop, we've looked at listen, we've looked at obey, and the last one is we look at is worship. This is the culmination of what we're talking about, that if we don't slow down, we won't know how to worship. So we're talking about worship to close with these last few moments we have together this morning. And we're going to talk about this word, there's two words in Hebrew, the significance of Asa Shema, the significance of Asa Shema. We'll put that up there because it's not English, so it'll be harder to, you know, you need to be able to re- see how it's written. The significance of Asa Shema, and the Shema is that word I mentioned about listening and obeying being one and the same. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to fast forward in the scriptures. We caught up a little bit to what's been going on, but now we're fast forwarding to Exodus 24, which is when the people had gotten through the, the Red Sea, and now they're in away from the Egypt, and they're in the, the land on the wilderness. We're going to start in verse 3. It says, When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early in the next morning and built an altar at the front of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Now, those, that last part in verse 7 is, we have to, we'll do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. In the Hebrew, it's this word, Asa Shema. And it's this, this combination of words, which basically, in the combination, what it means is, we will do, we will obey, and then we will understand. We will do it first. We will obey. Then we will fully grasp what God is calling us to do. And so, uh, Rabbi Lawrence Kushner is the one that dove into that a little bit. And he said, this idea is a very unique phrase. And so, the people are saying, we will do it first. We will obey first, and then we will truly understand what he's saying. And the reason that's important is that we said that the reason that was such a powerful thing, the reason we said today this, this sermon is not the six easy steps to how to worship God, but instead it's following the story of Moses and his path of worshiping God, was that it was because he stopped in Exodus 3. He saw the burning bush, and he stopped, and he decided to go over and see what God was doing. And then it was that he listened, and he actually heard the voice of God. Instead of just going to talk at him, he actually listened to him. And then through listening, he actually understood how it was to obey him and what God was calling him to do. And so then lastly, we get to this point of worshiping him. Because in Exodus 24-7, or sorry, in 24-4, when it talks about the idea that, God, or that Moses would go and he would build an altar on this mountain, this mountain in Exodus 24.4 is the same mountain from Exodus 3.12. It was the summation and the fulfillment of the promise. It was the sign that God was going to be with them the whole time. And so it was the proof of the fact that God was the one who was speaking. So that because Moses stopped, because he listened, because he obeyed, he was able to experience this moment of worship when he would look and say, God, how good you truly are. Look at how you've brought us through this, uh, this Exodus time. And look at what you've done. That I was me and you on this mountain a little while ago, and now it's me and you and the entire people on this mountain because I was able to stop, listen, and obey. And so now his worship was so full because he recognized that he had been changed by who God is, what he's done, and how he loves. So for us, for you and for me, what are the ways that we're missing out on this? Imagine, imagine if Moses never would have stopped. Well, he probably would have died with Midian as uh, sorry, with Jethro and Midian as a shepherd. The people would have been able to, would stay in Egypt for who knows how much longer until God raised up another deliverer. 
The people would have been stuck there and their people would have died and lived and generations would have died and lived and died and lived in slavery. But because he stopped, because he listened, because he obeyed, and because that culminated in worship, how many lives and generations of lives were changed? For you and me, what are the things that God is trying to stop you and cause you to stop and listen to what he has? What are the things that God has put upon your heart that we've listened, but maybe we haven't truly obeyed? What are the, who are the people that God said, you are meant to be Jesus to this person and reach out to them and show them my love and bring them to church, but more importantly, be the church to them. You are the one that's going to speak truth and love to a family member that has gone astray because there's brokenness and they don't want to believe the truth of who God is and what that looks like. And so that's you. You have to do that. Who is it in your life that God can potentially use to show the life, love, and hope and freedom that comes only from a relationship with God, but because we are not stopping, because of how we are so busy and distracted, because we're not listening, because of how absurd and deaf the world create causes us to be, because we're not obeying, because maybe if we do listen, we'd feel uncomfortable, how many generations of lives are going to be dying and living and dying and living and dying and living in slavery instead of being free because of what God has to say through you, through me, through us? That God has put each of us on a purpose, that we were made to do good works, but it doesn't mean that we burn ourselves out in the midst of it, that we slow ourselves down rather than burning ourselves out. Because if we don't slow down, we won't know how to worship. So are you so bombarded with activities that you can't even think about what it would look like to take a break? That you feel like the weight of the whole world is on your shoulders and you've put yourself on the throne of of running the world, then I encourage you to take a break this week. I encourage you in the middle of your day, Maybe you pray in the morning, that's awesome. Maybe you pray at night, that's awesome. But in the middle of your day, in the middle of this chaos in the surrounding, take a break, close your office door, or go on a walk, pray to God and read a psalm. Remember what it's like to be still and know that he is God on the throne, not us. Maybe you start looking at your week this week and you start to think, what would it actually look like to have a 24-hour Sabbath? It feels impossible, it's not. That God has commanded us to do it, so may we not be disobedient and neglecting it. Maybe remember that. Maybe you're so busy in church activity or, or leadership or activities that you're, you're seeing God work and you're, he's moving and you're excited about that, but you're wasting away like I was at two summer camps in a row and I'm burned out. Maybe you're burned out. Maybe what you need to do is to slow down because if we don't slow down, we won't know how to worship. But this week, take some steps to be still before God and ask him, How is it that we need to slow down? What can I do to slow down? And what does that look like? How can I tangibly be intentional of stopping, of listening, obeying, so that the culmination of that is worship? So as we close, there's a a slide I wanted to pull up for you that we talked about stopping first, then listening, then obeying, and then worship. And if you spell that out, the first letters of each one, it's this idea that we need to slow down. Stop, listen, obey, worship. Now, that's the six easy steps and how, to have, and how to worship? No. It's a picture of what worship fully looks like coming from the story of Moses and recognizing that the culmination of his worship came because he stopped, because he listened, because he obeyed, and because he worshiped. And so the final uh, point for you there is this idea that if we don't slow down with capital S, capital L, capital O, capital W, if we don't slow down, we won't know how to worship. If we don't stop, we don't listen, if we don't obey, 
then our worship is going to be just us standing here singing songs, and, and that'll be the, the summation of all of our worship. But if we do those all the times, then like Moses, we can have one of the most powerful worship experiences of our lives. And in so doing, we can be standing shoulder to shoulder with men, women, and children who have been freed from the busyness and the craziness and the absurdity of their lives and of our culture so that they too can truly worship, so that they too can be life givers and freedom deliverers, so that people would have a right relationship with God and that he would use us to do that, to see his kingdom come, to see his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, so that we can allow other people to know that they too can slow down and they too can know how to truly worship the one true God whom we love because we've been changed by who he is, what he's done, and how he loves. So if we don't slow down, We, you, me, us, we won't know how to truly worship. Father, we thank you so much for this morning, and we thank you that you are with us, that you love us, and that your word is good. Lord, we pray that you would um, just convict us, teach us, and shape us so that we could slow down, so we could see how it is, what it is you want us to do, and how it is that we can ensure in our lives that we are stopping, that we are listening, that we are obeying, and that we are worshiping you. Lord, we pray that we would slow down so we can know how to worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now the ushers are going to come forward in just a moment, and as they are doing that, they're going to be passing out the elements of the bread and the juice for our communion this morning. And if you are new here or if you don't have a relationship with God and you're still figuring out what that means, do not feel pressure to take communion. But for those of us who love Jesus, we've given our lives over to him, this is an opportunity for us to remember that sacrifice, that we take the bread that represents Jesus' body that was broken, We take the cup that represents his blood that was poured out. And so as you take the bread and as you take the cup this morning, may you slow down. Thank him for what he's done. And may that build into a time of worship because we recognize that if we don't slow down, we won't know how to worship. And so we can worship him truly because of who he is, what he's done, and how he loves. So feel free to partake of that as you feel led. God's shout of praise for his love that never fails and never gives up. So please hear me in this. Please don't take this message about slowing down as, as a, a burden to be placed upon your shoulders upon the other burdens that are already there. But rather, it may be an opportunity for us to see the life that God does have for us, a life that is not defined by being deaf, a life that is not defined by being burdened and overwhelmed and enslaved to time, but a life that can be delivered from that. In the same way he delivered the Israelites, he could deliver us from things as well. And so I pray and I hope that throughout your week, you would take time to slow down and in so doing, know how to worship. We are excited to to have you here. We're excited to see you next week as we close out our series on worship called It Starts Here. We hope to have uh, see you all there, and we hope that you have an opportunity to say hi to one another, have an opportunity to grab the VBS tags and bring them back next week, not two weeks from now, next week, um, and that we'll be able to worship God together one more time uh, next Sunday morning. Thank you guys so much. Have a wonderful, wonderful week, and God bless you.